Well, hello, family. Good to see you guys. It is a privilege to get to uh, teach you God's Word today and proclaim the good news today. Uh, Grab your Bibles, open them up. Genesis 7, Genesis 7, verse 11. Uh, as where we're going to uh, be today. We're looking uh, at Noah and the Flood. We finally got there, all right? Uh, Noah and the Flood. Um, just as a heads up, this chapter of history is very rainy and very dark in more ways than one, all right? Uh, which is a perfect fit for people who live in the Pacific Northwest in the fall, I think. So I should feel right at home with this chapter of Scripture, <laughs> Uh, With that said, please give your attention to the reading of God's word. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of heavens were opened. And the rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day Noah and his sons Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind. Every winged creature that went into the ark with Noah Two and two of all flesh in which there was breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. And it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep, and all the flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, everything on the land, everything on the dry land, and and whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creepeth things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on on the earth for 150 days. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, you uh, say that all people are like grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thank you, God, for your word and for giving us something that endures. Speak to us now, we ask. Change our lives. In the sacred name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. The trial of Ted Bundy in 1979 was covered by more than 250 journalists, and it spanned across five continents. And it's a trial that hits home to many Washingtonians. 
Bundy attended law school at the University of Puget Sound and then later on in Utah, but he never graduated, and we know why. One element that made the trial so sensational is that he arrogantly thought that he, a law school dropout, could better defend himself instead of the four lawyers appointed to him who had passed the bar. And in the end, Judge Edward Coward sentenced Bundy to death by electric chair, and he made two statements that almost seemed to contradict themselves in the eyes of the public. His first statement's been immortalized in pop culture to this very day. He says, and I quote, The court finds that both of these killings were indeed heinous, atrocious, and cruel and that they were extremely wicked, shockingly vile, evil, vile, and the product of a design to inflict a high degree of pain and utter indifference to human life, close quote. Now then, when Ted was leaving the courtroom, Judge Coward offered these lesser-known parting words to him. And I'm going to quote the full context, so this is taken in proper context. He said this, quote, Take care of yourself, young man. I say that to you sincerely. I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It is an utter tragedy for this court to see such a total waste of humanity, I think, as I've experienced in this courtroom. You're a bright young man. You'd have made a good lawyer, and I would have loved to have you practice in front of me. But you went another way, partner. I don't feel any animosity towards you. I want you to know that. Take care of yourself. Close quote. When people heard that, they lost their minds. I mean, the public just could not, they didn't have a category for that, those two statements. They could not understand how a judge could make the right call. He made the right judgment about someone obviously so wicked, and yet render that righteous judgment without the slightest bit of animosity. And with almost compassion for the very one that they are sentencing to death for their heinous crimes. People did not know what to do with that. They did not know what to do with the simultaneous expression of Judge Coward's righteous judgment and amazing grace. They didn't know how to respond to that. I think that this real-life event is so very helpful for us to understand another real-life event that's recorded in Genesis 7, the Great Flood. If we're being honest, we do not know what to do with God's righteous judgment and his amazing grace, especially when it sits side by side. How are we to respond to this? How are you and I to respond to this? Because it demands and even invokes a response, right? 
And so this is the big idea today. In order for us to know how to respond to God, we must first understand something about his righteous judgment, and we need to understand something about his amazing grace. And that's the kind of the pathway we walk to know how to, how to respond. And so we're going to look at each of those in turn today. First of all, no one, we need to understand this about God's judgment. No one can withstand God's righteous judgment on their own. No one can withstand his, right, his righteous judgment on their own. Uh, go to verse 18 and 20 here with me. It says, The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains covering them 15 cubits deep. And so we see pretty obviously the repetition of this phrase, the waters prevail, the waters prevail mightily, right? And the author clearly wants us to understand just how powerful God's righteous judgment is. This is a real picture of it. The word translated here, uh, prevailed, literally means in the, in the Hebrew, uh, to overwhelm with power. Okay? So it is like a full-on domination of power. Right? This was not just like a normal springtime flood. Okay? Floods happen all the time. This was not like some run-of-the-mill flood. This was not like a dam of a big, huge reservoir that broke loose. This was something entirely different that goes in a whole other category. You need to understand that. Both the sky and the earth have completely ripped open and trespassed their proper places without the slightest bit of inhibition, without the slightest bit of slowing down. Can you picture this? It is chaotic. It is chaotic and it is total in its destruction of all living things. Nothing that was living survived the mighty power of God's judgment. And to hit this point home, to, to, to put like a little exclamation mark on it for us, the text says not once but twice that even the mighty mountains were submerged under the water. It's like the last stronghold finally succumbed. Right? The waters prevail. The waters prevailed. God's judgment had finally come, and even the strongest object in the known world at the time, these high and mighty mountains, the places where you could run and flee to, they had preppers back then, and they'd flee to the mountains. They were not stronger than God's judgment. They were buried. So how much more buried were the unrighteous humans? For all their boasts of power, for all their intellect, for all their good achievements, for all their technological advances, for all their weapons of bronze and iron, it turns out that there was not one human strong enough to stand up under God's judgment when it finally came down. And like I said earlier, one of the things that made the trial of Ted Bundy so sensational, uh, besides the fact it was the first televised trial, 
But beyond that, it was the fact that he insisted on defending himself even though he was a law school dropout. He just didn't know that much about the law. He was supremely and foolishly confident, get this, in his own abilities to defend himself from the wickedness he had actually done. Like, in his mind, guys, he's like, I cannot lose. It is not possible that I could lose this trial. It's a shoe-in that I'll win. That was his thinking. He believed that he would not be judged if he took that in, if he took his life in his own hands. But the final analysis said that he could not stand up under the sentencing of Judge Coward. Isn't that kind of us? Isn't that our default mode when it comes to God's judgment? When we think of it? I mean, we don't like thinking of it, right? So where do we flee to to try to get away from those thoughts? I mean, we tend to think we can defend ourselves against any charge of being called wicked, right? It's not that bad. It's not wicked. (laughs) He'll understand, right? I mean, if we're being honest for just a second, we actually believe that we can enter God's courtroom and disqualify every piece of evidence that's brought against us and discredit every witness and every testimony that would bear witness against us. Am I right? We have got a way to have the court throw that out. Our good deeds, and there's so many of them, surely our good deeds in the end will outweigh all of our really, really bad deeds in the judge's mind. Surely our charming disposition and our charming explanations for why we loved what we loved and we did what we did and we thought the thoughts we thought, surely that that charm will justify us in God's eyes. After all, God's a good God. Surely our church attendance, our vast knowledge of the Bible, the fact that we've taught other Bible classes, our volunteer work, our love for the poor, our generosity surely will be powerful enough for us to withstand God's righteous and fair judgment for the few things we did, right? Or maybe we're trusting in spiritual a spiritual loophole in the law, you know, or an exception clause. I've got an exemption, an exception, right? I mean, that'll help me escape any kind of accountability. Yeah, I know I did that, but you know what? I was really tired. I hadn't slept in three days when I did that. You can't hold that against me. You know what? I was really hungry, and when my blood sugar gets low, it's no one wants to be around me in the house. You know what? I was lied to. And that's why I said what I said, because they lied to me. No cause for concern. You know, I'm a survivor. That's what I do. I survive. But friends, would you just look at the flood for just a second? That really happened. No one can survive the righteous judgment of God all by themselves. Period. Full stop. You know, the Bible tells us that there is another universal day of judgment that is coming. But the difference will be that on that day, God will finally remove all sin from the earth. And go to 2 Peter with me, verse chapter 3, verse 4 through 7. And they will say, 
These are the people that are doubting. He says, where is the promise of his coming? Talking about the second coming of Jesus. Where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are just continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. They're saying everything's just the way it always was. Right? And so he's going to respond to that. For they deliberately overlook this fact. This isn't a myth. This isn't a little children's story. This is a fact, the apostle says. They overlooked this fact on purpose, that the heavens existed long ago and that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But... So he's going to contrast that with this. But by that same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Not the earth, but the ungodly. Much like in the days of Noah, this is the part that's similar, much like the days of Noah, God has mercifully delayed his final judgment for years and years and years and years and generations upon generations upon generations. But we must not confuse his patience against sin as him being forgetful. John Newton may lose his memory, but God doesn't. God's a righteous judge, and so he can't just kind of like wave it all away and forget about it, forget all that stuff happened. But unlike the days of Noah, this is the part that's different. God will not destroy the earth, but rather the unrighteous who have ignored him as God and vandalized his creation. And we must not think that when his fair judgment finally comes, that our defenses will be adequate. That's like believing you'll survive a 40-day flood all by yourself without an ark. Or with like, you know, couple hundred cans of beans somewhere in a basement. But in order to correctly respond to God, we have to also understand something else. We have got to understand about his amazing grace. See, if you don't understand the first point of my sermon, you're not going to believe the second point's really amazing. You're just not. You can't just jump to that. Right? And we've got to understand something about his amazing grace. And here it is. You guys ready? That those that enter God's ark will live securely. All those that enter God's ark will live securely. It's here uh, in the text in 16, verse 16 and 17. It says, and those that entered, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh. Okay, so this is pretty broad, right? Went in. As God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The Lord shut him in. Verse 17. Now the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. And listen now, it rose high above the earth. It rose high above the earth. And so despite the fact that people have corrupted the earth with their wickedness, God does not want any to perish. What a God. For years, Noah built this ark to God's specifications. 
God had some very particular way of the size and the shape and the depth and the length of this ark that he wanted Noah to build. And he built it to God's specifications. And so for years, people saw this strange vessel with no sail, no holes for oars, no way to propel itself, no rudder, no anchor, to, you know, rudder to steer it. It basically was this big, massive, watertight coffin. Doesn't that look like a coffin to you? Look at it. That's just a big bobbin coffin. And who wants to get in a coffin to be saved? Right? It's just going to basically bob up and down on the water till who knows when. Like, you look at that and you don't think, gosh, that will save me. You just don't look at that. Because that doesn't look like a ship. Are you, guys, are you guys feeling what I'm saying here? But it was large enough to carry Noah's family in two of every kind of animal. And guess what? Whoever else wanted to get on board. It's not like it was cramped in there. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of animals, but that's a, that's a big container. The text says, those that entered went in as God commanded, right? That is to say, whoever did go in, whosoever did go in, they entered how? As God commanded. Well, how are they going to enter? By faith. That's the only way they enter something like that, <laughs> right? They enter by faith. Why? Because they trusted God's word about his coming, fair, righteous judgment, and they trusted in his instrument of salvation, as nutty as it looks. They trusted both those words from God, right? And I find this is, this is what I found very interesting when I, when I was reading this. I found this phrasing uh, interesting, those that entered. Now, it doesn't say and when Noah entered. They didn't say his wife and his family entered. It just says those that entered, right? Male and female. So it communicates that this ark was open to whosoever would enter it. Listen, anyone who wanted to enter it by faith would get in. And they'd be saved. Listen, the door was always open. I gotta wonder why hundreds of years ago, if that's why chapels and cathedrals and churches used to be, their doors were open all day and all night. You just have a vicar in there all night or a priest staying up all night. Was there anything about that architecture at all sending out the message of God's word? The doors are open, come in and be saved. The door was always open. Every day that door was open. As soon as they framed it. All right? And then there's this phrase that says, and the Lord shut him in. Yahweh himself shut in the man that he had given his promise to and all those that entered by following him into the ark. Because God didn't say that to anyone else. He just said it to Noah. So whoever followed Noah in was entering by faith. And it says that God securely shut them in. God shut the door, right? If they got inside by faith, then God made sure that they stayed inside. They were spared His judgment. Water didn't get in. Wind didn't get in. And they didn't fall out. If you're in, you're in. 
Noah and his family could not survive the floodwaters, but this rudderless ark can. They cannot float in a storm, but this divine ship built to God's exacting schematics can float. And so when they get inside the ship, they can do whatever the ship does that they couldn't do on their own. Are you guys tracking with me? Right? Inside the ark, they can actually float as long as is needed. Inside the ark, they can and will be protected from rain and wind and death and judgment. They will. They can't do that on their own, but they can do whatever the ark does because they're in the ark. Prior to his justice, by the way, that's a mercy right there. Prior to, his, uh, prior to his justice, God provides an instrument, a vessel of grace for who would ever get inside of it by faith and just believe what he's saying is true. And you may say, well, that's great for Noah. <laughs> right? God's judgment came in a flood and God gave him a ship to save him. A watertight Coffin to get inside of. Good for Noah, right? But you just said, Chad, that God's going to judge the world a final time. So where's our ark? Where is our ark that'll save us from that? I'm glad you asked. Jesus is our ark. Jesus is our ark who saves us. He is the vessel of grace. He is the instrument that God has provided to exacting details to save us from his coming judgment, but more than that, to give us eternal life, abundant life, not cramped life. If I could just mix metaphors just for a moment with you guys, I want you to look at what Jesus himself says about himself in John chapter 10. And so Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door. I am the door of the sheep, two by two. <laughs> right? So all who come before me, they're thieves and they're robbers, but the sheep didn't listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Then jump down to 27. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and get this, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Sounds like God is shutting them in to me. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is both the ark that saves and the very door that we enter through by faith into that salvation. There's not another way to get in. He is the way. The life, the death, the, the resurrection of Jesus is what we must get inside of to be rescued from judgment. And that means the judgment from your own conscience sometimes. And when we come inside, Jesus is the door. He's the secure door that shuts us in. And so we continue to trust him every day. We continually come inside Jesus. We enter eternal life. We experience that eternal life. 
Every day, day after day after day, we continue to put our trust in him and not in ourselves, not in our own morality, not in our own defense, our own justification, but in Christ. This is the righteous judgment. This is the amazing grace of God. Now, how should we respond? You're probably thinking, okay, that's really cute, Chad, but what do I do with that? Here's how we respond. You ready? Get inside the ark. Get inside the ark that God's provided. Don't just sit there and listen to it. Don't just sit in there and look at it and observe it. Get in it. Get in. Make a move. Make a move. Make a move. Here's my question. Have you gotten inside of Jesus by trusting all of yourself to all that you know of him? Or are you still outside of him? You're just really close. You're near him, but you're still outside of him. You're admiring him. You have great respect for him. You're observing some of his teachings. You're near his people, but still outside of him. Is that you? Are you still basically trusting in your morality, your ethics, your spirituality? to help you survive this life and the life to come. See, here's what I find staggering about this whole story, brothers and sisters. Only eight people, only eight people out of the entire population of the world believed God's word about his coming judgment and they believed in his grace, that his grace was sufficient to save them even though there was room for many, 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 many more. Only eight responded. Only eight believed. Notice, when the judgment came, it wasn't like people were banging on the door of the ark to get in, right? You don't read that in the story. I mean, that might make great drama for a movie, but that's not actually what happened. It it wasn't like people were like begging, oh, I've changed my mind. Oh, I see that God's true. And they're like banging on the door for like Noah let us in. We've had a change of heart. We've had a change of mind. And Noah's like refusing to let them in. Like, oh no, no, you lost your chance. That's not what's happening. That didn't happen, right? The door was propped open every day until the Lord shut it. Right? Other than that, it was open every day. Come in, come out. Bring what you need, fine. Every person on the planet except eight people ignored God's warning and they ignored his instrument of salvation and grace. Jesus teaches us this in Luke 17, 26. And the Bible talks a ton about Noah. Like he's not a small character in the Bible. Just as it was in the day of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. This is when Christ returns. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. What's he saying? He's saying that right up until the day of judgment, people were more excited about getting married and throwing parties and eating good foods with their friend and planning for the future and checking their retirement plans and just doing life. Like it was just like normal. They're just doing normal stuff, right? 
They weren't, it weren't like searching for God and searching for salvation and then getting shut out. They weren't even really serious. They weren't even really looking. That's what Jesus is saying. They weren't concerned about their spiritual state of being. They weren't inspecting that. They weren't asking. Nothing on the inside of life. It's all external. That's what Jesus is saying. So as your pastor who loves you, I have to ask, is that you today? And if you're just listening to the podcast, i got to ask you, is that you today? Are you completely unaware of your spiritual state right now? Maybe you don't even care. Like, that's not even something you want to talk about. Are you unconcerned about the sin in your life? That ever bother you? Keep you up at night? Ever? And there may be others of you here that you, you are, and you are seeking God. But you have, you've been told this false idea that you cannot become a Christian until you get your life fixed first. You have been falsely told that you have to get your politics straightened out first. You have to get your sexuality straightened out first. You have to get your addictions straightened out first. You have to get your marriage straightened out first. Then, and only then, will you be good enough to receive God's salvation and receive His grace. And if that is you, please, please listen to me right now. You don't have to get your life straightened out or all your beliefs straightened out first to be saved. You just come straight away to Jesus, right? You just come straight away to Jesus. And you let Jesus straighten out all that is confused and crooked in you later on. And He will. He will. Jesus said, come to me. Just come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those are his words, not mine. Listen, here's all you need to do to respond. Listen, here's all you need to do. Enter the ark. Enter the ark. What does that mean? It means you need to hide your life inside of mighty Jesus by putting your Trust in him. Trust in your whole life to him. Jesus has all the dimensions and he has all the space to hold your life. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. I just want to tell you about my Jesus, all right? Jesus is big enough to save you. He is deep enough to change you. He is strong enough to secure you and he is loving enough to keep you. Let the church say amen. That's Jesus. And that's the gospel. Make a move. Don't admire it. And forget it. Make a move. In Jesus' name, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your Holy Spirit. I'm feeling them today. And I pray that hearts would be open right now, right now. And they would hear your sweet words of grace and salvation by faith alone 
in your perfect, perfect life. And they would make a move. They'd respond by faith. They'd say they're sorry. They'd say they're sorry for what they ought to be sorry for. And we would say thank you for all that we should be thankful for. And Father, I pray you start with me. Forgive me for all the times I've ignored you, thought little of you and less of you, and much of myself. You are a great, great Savior who loves sinners. Help us be a church that lives that and believes that and shares that message with other people. In Jesus' sacred name I pray, amen.